This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Anita Rani and welcome to Woman's Hour from BBC Radio 4. Good morning and welcome to the programme. Sharenting, is that a word you've heard? This is when parents share information about their children online. Is this you? Have you put up pics of your kids, divulged information that maybe you've later regretted? Or maybe not. Are you the child who's having the images and information shared about you? Maybe it's simply so your friends and family can keep up to date with what's going on in your life. But of course, if your account is public, or even if it's not, your information is public. Does it matter? Has it caused conflict in your household with your children or with your parents? And how do you feel about other people putting up information about their children and how they choose to parent? I would love to hear your stories this morning. Share your sharenting stories with me. Uh, Get in touch in the usual way. The text number 84844. You can contact me via social media at BBC Woman's Hour. You can WhatsApp me on 03700 100 444. And of course, you can email me by going to our website. Also on the programme, Emily Spurrell, the first police and crime commissioner to have a baby while in office. But it was only once pregnant and in the job that she discovered there were no maternity provisions in place. So, as well as being pregnant, she had to sort it out herself. I'll be speaking to her. And two years since the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you will hear from a journalist based in Odessa. And of course, I would like to hear from you on anything you hear on the programme that you want to share your opinions and thoughts about. The text number... 84844. But first, to a story of true resilience. I'm I'm joined in the studio today by Kelsey Parker. Kelsey's husband, Tom, best known for being a pop star in the band The Wanted, died nearly two years ago after he was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumour in 2020, aged just 33. Throughout his illness, Tom spoke openly and honestly about his diagnosis and was involved in raising awareness and funding to highlight the impact of brain tumours, often with Kelsey by his side. After his death, she's continued his work. Kelsey and Tom were together for 13 years and have two children. She announced last month, after a lot of reflection, it was time to take off her wedding rings. And Kelsey joins me now in the studio to tell me all about it. Kelsey, welcome. Hello. Well, thank you for having me. Um, absolutely. Um, our pleasure. I am... Um, so much I want to talk to you about because I said this is a true story of true resilience and we'll get into all of that but first of all why now and how did you come to the decision after two years to take your wedding rings off do you know what it is something that I thought about since the very beginning I feel like um when Tom went to the hospice and it, it was time for him um to leave me you know we had this exchange where he put the ring on his wedding ring on my finger um so it was so important to me, like our marriage and, and everything. But, you know, it's so hard because obviously how people react to it. But in this lifetime, I'm not married to anyone. Tom's no longer here. He's my husband. This The wedding ring was just a symbol of our love. It doesn't mean our love. Like my love is endless for him and it will never fade and it will never go anywhere. But it's time for me, especially this year, I just feel a lot clearer and I I can't make sense of it. I I probably had a haze and a bit of a brain fog for, for, you know, well, it's going to be two years next month. But I just feel clearer. I feel like I can see this year and it's time to focus on me. I gave so much 
to Tom and I would never, ever change anything that I did for him. But as soon as he was diagnosed, you know, it was about Tom. So maybe this year I'm focusing more on me, which I need to do. And so was it a slow process? I mean, did you keep the rings on? Did you keep his ring on for the entire two years? And how did that make you feel for that time whilst you had them on? You know, it's bittersweet. I'd look down at my finger and be like, he's not here. How mm. how can I move forward with my life now that I've not got him? You know, I was with Tom since I was 19. So I've young. only known my life with Tom. I don't know what my life looks like now. And I guess for me, that was quite confusing. So it's like we're married. And, you know, we had the most amazing wedding. I look down at the wedding ring and think, oh, the memories we had together. But I'll always have them memories. The wedding ring doesn't symbolise that. So what, it's, it's in here, isn't it? And in my heart. What have you done with them? What will you do with them? At the moment, they're in a box because I don't know what to do with them. Mm. I, you know, and I laughed to myself of what Tom would say to do. I'm not going to even tell you what Tom Go would tell on. me to do. No, I'm not going to say. <laughs> but, you know, I would like them for the kids. It's making a decision who gets what ring. They're beautiful rings as well. So, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, why don't you melt them down and make them as one? But I'm like, but it's a standing ring. I can't, I can't do that. And I know that the effort he went to to get that ring made for me as well. I don't think you need to make a decision yet. I think no. you can just... Sit with it. Sit with it. Do what you want. Someone's actually been in such... Maybe maybe people listening have gone through something similar. Maybe they can tell us what they've done with their wedding rings. Helen is emailed in straight away to say, I removed my wedding rings after my husband died five years ago, mainly due to my fingers swelling after steroid treatment. However, last year I had them altered and now wearing them again. I will always be married to my beloved husband despite his untimely death, age 63. There is no one else for me. So, you know, other people sharing their experiences. Um... A couple of weeks ago on the programme here, we talked about Kate Garraway going back to work and she said the first time someone called her a widow, knocking on the door, it was a delivery man and he called her a widow and it, and it, it made her really think about the fact that that's how people will see her now. And I just wonder whether you remember being given that label for the first time. For me, it was when, you know, the paperwork side of things, that was really like, it's so hard to actually get your you know, your your paperwork in order. And then it was for me every time it's like, oh, you're a widow now, you're a widow now. You know, just organising things. And for me, I was 31 and made a widow and two young children. You know, I never thought my life would look like this. And it's scary, you know, 31. And, and how people think you should dress and look and be a widow, it's like, that's not me either. And how are the children? They're really good. They're so good. And, you know... I'm so proud of, of how they're, they're doing. Don't get me wrong, children are relentless anyway, but it's every day we talk about Tom. You know, they're really obsessed with um, death at the moment. And actually, uh, my mum dropped Aurelia to school this morning and they're going to be talking about families today. And the teacher just flagged and said, we're going to be talking about families. And my mum went, oh, don't worry, Aurelia will be fine. She'll get up and tell everyone that her dad's dead. We're very honest and we're very open. And I don't want her to feel like, you know, it's an elephant in the room. How did you feel when they said, the teachers said that that's what the conversation was going to be? Well, my mum rang me and said, oh, they're going to talk about this in school today. And I was like, oh, she'll be absolutely fine. Because why should she shy away from that? It's it, That's her life. We're living life without her dad. So how do you talk about it at home? We're, we're really honest and open. And they are quite obsessed with death hmm. at the moment so uh Bodie's like oh when's my mum gonna come home she's not dead yet like and then Aurelia said because when Tom actually passed I said I'm gonna go and let the angels take 
Daddy today, they're going to collect Daddy and we won't see Daddy anymore. So she was saying to me the other night, oh, when the angels take me, hmm. what will happen to me? And, you know, I try and make it so she's not scared of death because I don't want her to think that, you know, it was an awful experience for her dad because it might not have been an awful experience for her dad. And I, and I don't think it was. I think he passed very peacefully and had a really nice death. And I always talk about if, when I die, I would like a death like Tom. And I know that's really hard for people to listen to right now, but he did have a magical death. It's your experience. I think it, it's it, maybe it'll be hard for some, maybe not for others, but I think people will definitely be paying attention to what you have to say. So tell us more. What about about yeah, the death? He's if dead. If you don't mind. You know, I did everything, well, and so did Tom, to make him as healthy as possible. Yeah. So in them final stages, he wasn't, you know, nothing was failing. His liver wasn't failing. His kidneys weren't failing. Like, he was actually healthy. Mm. And he was really tanned. We'd just been to Spain for three weeks because we were having treatment over there. And I just think, you know, I've become quite spiritual. And it's made me think maybe when it's your time, it's your time. And I do think Tom had fought so hard and just came to the stage where he'd had enough. And it was his time and his passing was so peaceful. His breathing changed and he just went. But I always laugh because Tom was so scared to die. Like, he was like, oh, I'm so scared. I'm like, it's fine. You're going to be fine. Like, anyone's going to be fine, Tom. Like, when it's your time, it's your time. And when he passed over, I, I, I had this feeling that he probably was looking at me going, was that it? Was that it? I was worried about that because it was peaceful. Kelsey, this is something I, just from knowing the stuff I know about you, from seeing you on other things and reading about you, even people listening to you talk or maybe experiencing the same thing is what struck me is your strength and your resilience. Even you saying that you were the one supporting him to say, don't be scared. When you had two little children, in fact, you were 35 weeks pregnant when he was diagnosed. So you had to give birth once you, after you knew what was happening. Yeah, that was... Traumatic. Well, obviously, I had Tom that had just been diagnosed and, and he was so scared and so frightened and it was almost like he was another child of mine because he was, you know, he'd just been given the news that he had a stage four cancer and also, you know, there's not a lot of funding and there's not a lot we can do. You're going to have this radio and chemo. You know, when you're diagnosed, you want that magic wand. You want someone to go, don't worry, you've got stage four, but you're going to be all right. We never got a prognosis and... I was pregnant, we were in COVID. So even going into the hospital, it was like when we went in, we couldn't leave. We were given a room and I felt guilty when I was actually in labour because I wanted to be there for Tom. And I thought for this, right, you've just got to get this baby out. And literally he did come out like a rocket. Um, but I was like, I've got, I've got to just get this baby out and then I'm back to Tom. And I said to the nurses, as soon as I had Bodhi, they were like, do you want any pain relief? I went, nope, I'm fine. They were like, I just can't believe that you're, you're not even having anything. I was like, I'm fine. And I said, and what's the earliest I can leave? And they was like, 5am, because you've had like a nighttime baby, you've got to stay in. I was like, right, I'm leaving at five. I'll have someone at the door. Because Tom had to go home. And I was like, you're going to radio and chemo. That's it. We've got to continue. And that's how I think I've got my strength. You know, I've been... I can look forward and push forward. Where does that come from? Just within. I think I've got it within me. And people ask me that all the time. And I don't know where it comes from. But I'm just strong. You are, right? There is an energy. about. I mean, you can. people will hear it in your voice. I can see it because I'm sitting opposite <laughs> you. And I can see your eyes. Um, 
But not everybody can would have dealt with this. Not everybody. You gave birth, and with no, and then decided knew you had to be by your husband's side. Is it? I know you mentioned your mum already. Yeah. Tell me about your support network because what, I wonder what your mum would say if she was sitting here. If I asked her, where does Kelsey's strength come from? What do you think she would say? I don't know, but my mum's one of these people that just gets on with it. Whatever's life life throws at you, you've got to get on with it. And she said to me. Even when Tom was diagnosed, I remember ringing my mum like, obviously distraught because that's the person you go to. My mum was like, he's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. He's going to be fine. And I thought, mum, my mum thinks he's going to be fine. That's it. We we remain positive. And maybe it's that positive energy Mm. that I've got. You know, and I do find it hard because I understand how people hit rock bottom with this. And, you know, when Tom did die... I, I struggled to obviously get out of bed. For me, it was when he actually went into the hospice and I thought, this is it. That was my really hard period where I felt like someone had dropped a, a ton of bricks on me and I couldn't get out of bed. But again, I needed to get out of bed for him. So I needed what, so to be what, there for him. So what got you out? Him and, and being there and being strong and being there for my kids. Like, they were babies. They can't see me broken. Even though I was broken inside, of course I was. I I had to pull myself together and get on with it. And maybe that strength as, you know, with Kate Garray, she's gone back to work. Like I went to back, back to work really quick, mm. but I know now that I was probably having an out-of-body experience. I was just maybe looking down at my body going, you're still going, girl, you're still going. When did you realise that that's what was happening? What did, was there a process where you slowed, you slowed down and actually gave yourself time to process what you'd been through? Do you know what? Probably over this Christmas. Yeah. I think this that was my time to go... You know, I'm so proud of myself and I don't tell myself enough of how strong and great I actually am. And I know I should do that because, we, you know, as women, you should tell that. Even just being a mum and waking up for your kids in the morning, I know is a struggle. But to go through what I've been through and still be here and still be strong and still be present, I am proud of myself. But I have had moments, you know. Who do you pick the phone up to? Or don't you? Mm, oh, I think I, I am a good sharer as well. I If I am having a problem, I will ring everyone. And I, I've got the village. And yeah. I think now this is, people haven't got the villages. I think everyone's so busy with work and having to go to work and earn a living and try and be, you know, present for their kids and take them to the clubs. And, you know, life is so busy that even like mine and Tom's back door was always open people were always in our house like we've always had the village and I think I couldn't have got through this without you know my family Tom's family like we are a village you've always been positive though haven't you you've always been sort of the driving force and even in the relationship you were so young when you got together he wasn't even famous at that point right no I met him when he on his first night out in the band in a nightclub and he was like oh yeah I'm a pop star I was like oh yeah is that what he said well he's like I'm in a band I was like okay what's your band called he went oh no we've not got a name yet I was like okay (laughs) what was it about him he just had he was just everything and it's really weird again I'm I'm quite spiritual now and I, I maybe was always like this but I didn't know I saw Tom outside of a nightclub and grabbed my best friend, who's also called Kelsey. My best friend is called Kelsey. (laughs) Grabbed Kelsey and went, I'm in love with him. She went, what? I went, no, no, no. There's something about him. I need to speak to him when I get into this nightclub. And I've never felt like that about anyone. But he had an energy and an aura and we were just literally drawn to each other. And people... When obviously we became like official and been together a long time, everyone used to say to us, you are the boy and girl version of each other. Amazing. 
we were actually boy and girl then, weren't we? I should yeah. say like male <laughs> and female, but we no. were kids when we got together. We've been through so much. I only know like my life with Tom. And so how has it been? It's hard without him. Even making decisions, even, you know, dropping the kids to school when they've got World Book Days coming up. Yeah. I would love to send them a picture and go, oh, look what Aurelia's wearing. Bodie's doing amazing at his preschool. I just would love to share. But he's watching me. He's with me. I can feel him. You've mentioned it twice now, which is, you said you've ne- you weren't spiritual before, but you are now. What's happened? I just think it, it opened my eyes that there's got to be more out there. Just with everything, just the route that me and Tom took with making him better and and getting through the 18 months, I really found, you know, peace in spirituality, but also um, alternative medicine. Like, it's really opened my eyes because I think when you're in a situation where you've gone into the room, they've told you that he's got the worst brain cancer possible there's no funding this is this is what it's going to be you're going to get the radio the chemo if if that works mm. we'll give him a little bit more chemo you but, tried everything didn't you but that's it mm. we tried everything and that would be my advice for people throw everything you've got at it but you had the resources as well kelsey you were lucky enough to have the resources weren't you yeah but, but, you know, there is so much out there that you can, yeah. you know, I got into studying and reading books and being on the internet till whatever time at night. Again, I, sp- I speak about, I looked at survival stories. Mm. Mine was, you know, who's surviving this? Why are they surviving it? What are they doing? We're doing it. Now, we've talked a lot about, you know, you, various choices that you're making and you, you said you processed things over Christmas and it takes time. We've talked a lot about grief on this programme as well. And you met someone else and people feel that they had to, they had an opinion on that. So I want to talk a bit about the trolling, the negative side. Yeah, I just think people are very entitled to opinions. And I guess I have sh- shared my journey in a really raw, vulnerable way. And I want people, you know, even meeting someone, that was part of my grief journey. At that time, I needed someone and it wasn't my fr- my friends and my family. It was someone else. Um, but you know, everyone deals with grief so differently and there's no right or wrong way. And who, who's anyone to judge? I would never judge anyone now because, you know, walk a day in my shoes and then come back to me and then see if you could be judgmental. Well, when I was reading about that, I thought, I thought, I wonder if people would have the same opinion if it was a widowed man moving on, would people say the same thing if a man had met someone? It just crossed my mind. Well, for me... I don't think they do. I think it's okay for a man to need his dinner cooked to need affection and love. It's not okay for a woman, and I I don't understand why. Why is that different? Because I like what I said. What my friends and family gave me was everything, but I needed more. I don't know what it was, you know. And I'd been there for Tom yeah. for so long and fought for him. You don't need to justify it. No, I know. No, I mean not here. I mean say what you want, but you don't, yeah. you know. But um, I. How do you then cope with that on top of everything else, the public having an opinion on you and your personal life? I, I need to focus on my kids and I don't really care what anyone... Maybe that's why I'm so resilient. I don't actually care what people think about me. It's a superpower. Yeah, I actually don't like... Okay, people are trolling me, but, you know, I'm living my life and that's it. And if you... Like what I said, walk in my shoes, then come back to me and see if you do anything different. But even the toughest cookie 
when you get, you know, that one message, you just glance on social media and someone might just say something that really does hurt your feelings. So what do you do? But is that reflection on them, that they're actually going online and, and putting that out there? Like, I would never dream of going onto anyone's page and posting something mean or horrible. Like, that's just not me. Like I said, I'm about positive energy. What you give out in life is what you get back. So if you want to go around trolling, good luck. <laughs> so what's next? Next chapter? How, where are you in your life? You know what? I'm excited to see what my future is. And I think I've been scared for the past two years of what where my future's taken me. Um, but I've got one life and I've got to live it to the full and be there for my kids. And yeah, I'm excited. You know, there's so many things that I want to do and make Tom proud, you know, shine more light on the brain tumour awareness. It gets 1% of funding. There's no research that goes into brain tumours. So, you know, I've got to do something about that. Um, but just personally, to make myself happy again, and I don't know what happiness looks like, but I'm excited to see what my future will be. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you this morning. Thank you so much for coming in. You know, we've had lots of messages from people sharing their own stories. Shall I read some of them yeah, out? Yeah, read them. Um, uh, we've got one here saying, I've been widowed for nearly 16 years and I don't wear my wedding ring. My husband died at 59 and I left his wedding ring on his finger because he never took it off in life. As Kelsey says, my wedding ring doesn't stand for my continued love for my husband or our marriage. This is in my heart. Mm. And another one from Rachel saying, my mum died 10 years ago and my dad was quite quick to take off his ring, which upset me initially, but I later found his and my mum's rings together in her jewellery box, which was sweet. When I turned 18, my dad gave me my mum's wedding ring to wear and I've had it on every day since. He's since given me his wedding ring and my mum's engagement ring and permission for my partner to use them for my own engagement ring. See, I love that. That's what I really want to do. So Aurelia will have it one day. There we go. Kelsey, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and of course, if you've been affected by anything from that discussion, you can head to our website to find links for support. And please keep your thoughts coming in 84844. Now, to a work of fiction that is drawing attention to the potential dangers of sharing. That is, sharing too much information about your children on social media. Every, every Smile You Fake is the new psychological thriller by the author Dorothy Coombson and follows Brandy, the daughter of a parenting influencer who's mysteriously disappeared. It explores the impact of sharenting on the first generation of kids who grew up as subjects of their parenting channels or blogs. And very much in the real world, you may have heard of proposed laws in France and the US that seek to regulate so-called sharenting, in particular when it's monetized. Well, to discuss this and more, I'm joined by Dorothy Coombson and Dr Emma Nottingham, a senior lecturer in law at the University of Winchester. Welcome, both of you. Um, Emma, I'm going to come to you first. How would you define sharenting? Sharenting is a term that has evolved over time. It generally comes from the word share and parenting. So it refers to the oversharing of information and images by parents about children, generally via social media. Um, initially, that has generally meant just sharing information about your day to day life. But over time, it's become a process that can be much more commercial. So now we see a lot of uh, vloggers um, and social media influencers who include images of children on their platforms. Um, Dorothy, why did you want to write about it? Um, initially, I started writing about it because I wanted to tell the story of somebody who was famous and nowadays most people are internet famous and you're able to become 
internet famous. And as I discovered, a lot of the people who are internet famous, as it were, have a history. Um, they come from a background where a lot of their lives have been put online and it is a very big thing. When when we started with, with um, the internet, social media, mainly Facebook, I um, we were sharing it and we were sharing it amongst friends and family, people we knew. And I, I don't think we've realized how broad the people we're sharing information with has become. And so when I was writing Every Smiley Fake, I decided to kind of explore that area of our world, our online lives that we kind of don't pay attention to. Mm. A lot of the time we don't read the terms and conditions of social media sites and we don't realise that they can sell our data on, they can sell our images on. And people who used to use Facebook and Instagram and all the all of the social media sites to keep up with family and friends are now sharing it with uh, a bigger, much bigger audience than they actually intended to. And you started doing a lot of research into it. So what did you find? Well, I found a lot of stuff that was very unsettling. Um, I try not to say scary because I don't want to scare people. No. But um, a lot of people, as I said, used it to share information about um, family and to family and friends, but don't realise that um, according to lots of different research things, by the age of 13, a child has had uh, their image shared about 1,300 times by other people. So a child has had pictures of themselves uploaded to the internet, to social media sites by other people. They have no control over that. And um, you have no control. Once you've uploaded it, you have no control of what people do with that image. And um, I found really unsettling um, research that showed that people, um, less less um, sort of ethical people, should we say, use those images they come across those images they save those images and they use them in other forums in in other ways that you don't actually think about other people might be using pictures of your children emma let's come let's come to you can can does does this sort of resonate with you and tell us about a bit about the research that you've been doing into this uh, yeah, so sharenting is quite a new phenomenon. So the research in this area is still relatively new and there's a lot to explore. Um, I think there needs to be a bit more understanding around the potential harms that can occur um, as a result of sharenting. So, for example, the emotional distress that might cause a child um, in the future. Uh, but equally, it's also important to balance the, that negative side of it with the positive side um, because sharenting has also um, been a way for people to connect with others uh, reach out to different communities via social media so I think research going forwards needs to weigh up those pros and cons yeah because um, um, I mean as you said Dorothy we're sort of in this open landscape now it's almost like the wild west isn't it where we're just figuring it out it's new terrain it's new territory but cases are occurring where children are growing up who have had their lives uh, shared and some of them aren't particularly okay with it. No, absolutely not. And they find that the things that their parents shared with them about them, follow them through their lives. And one of the people who I um, started following on the, on social media, who talks a lot about their experiences, talks a lot about things like they had, um, 
they were in a, a car crash and rather than their mother sort of comforting them whilst they were on um in the hospital their mother was taking pictures of them and posting about the crash um in a way that was really you know is really awful for for them because they didn't get the comfort of a mother they got somebody who was posting about their their injuries and how the mother felt about the the crash rather than getting support um there were so many instances of people who felt like you know they were keeping their family going financially because if they apparently if they stopped they refused to be a part of um what their parents were sharing on blogging and blogs they their family would basically end up um destitute they'd have no money to do anything well this is a um, woman who's a journalist wasn't it who's who was yes. sharing information but, but she was just talking about her, her column and it was her life right so children would be part of that yes no um, not just her there was there's so many other parents who children who have been told and who tell um cam who I was just talking about with who was in the car crash a lot of people mm. who children who parents do put their lives online talk to them about their experiences and they say regularly that children are told that if they stop allowing their parents to share their lives online their the whole family will have no income and they'll have they'll be destitute um it's it's kind of like one of the phenomenons because there is so much money to be made mm. some you know millions sometimes and that's before endorsements and holidays and clothes and stuff i wonder what how i wonder what um part the sort of just the addictive nature of this social media has to play in all of this is that something you've come across as time's gone on they've become more addictive and the way that social media sites are structured they are very addictive you the the whole continuous scrolling where things are just constantly played one after the other it's really addictive and you can imagine um that you get a hit every time you get a hit of dopamine you get a hit of, of happier hormones when people interact with you people take pay attention to you mm. and sometimes it doesn't even have to be positive interaction it it can be negative and that is a hit of attention that you're constantly craving you're constantly craving people interacting with you people paying attention to you, you being the centre of the story. Emma, what, what's, how, what's the picture like around the world and have there been attempts to regulate it? Give us a bit more context. In the UK, there isn't really any regulation around uh, sharing at the moment and that hasn't featured very much in the recent debates around the online safety bill. Um, uh, overseas in France, um, there is a, a new bill that was put forward in 2023. Um, so that's really leading the way, I think, for other jurisdictions to follow. And that would make parents responsible for the protection of their children's privacy. Um, it would mean that they also have to involve the child in decision making around around sharing as much as possible. Um, it also does give some powers to actually ban one or both parents from sharing images. And in really extreme cases, um, a judge can actually take the parent's authority to use their child's image away. Dorothy, what impact do you hope your book will have? You've picked this as a subject. What would you like the reaction to be? 
I'd like people just to be aware of what they're sharing. I mean, as Emma said, I I think sharing online information is actually a good thing. I don't think it's, I know I sound like I'm being down on people, but it began as a way of getting support. And it is a very valid way of getting support. And especially if you don't live near anybody who has children the same age as you or live near family, being online and sharing online is good. But you've got to be aware of what you're doing and what you're, who is looking at your stuff and um, who can use your images, your children's images, and how it will affect your children's lives later on. One of the people whose story I was um, following Mm. says that even now they have to, um, when they meet somebody new or they go for a job interview, they have to make these people aware of what has been shared online about them so that they know that nothing's going to come back to bite them, basically, Mm -hmm. or follow them up. And it's nothing that they've shared or nothing that they've created, but somebody else has created it and therefore has impacted them and it will impact them for the rest of their lives. Thank you both for speaking. There's lots to think about there. That was Dorothy Coombson and Dr Emma Nottingham. And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in that conversation, you can find support links on our website. 84844, the number to text. Lots of you getting in touch with what you heard uh, about Kelsey Parker's interview that we I spoke to her this morning. Um, I'm a widow. I gave our wedding rings to our daughter and then future son-in-law to use for their wedding rings. Either sell them and put the money towards others or have them melted down. Um, is that... Um, Keep your thoughts coming in. You can also email me by going to our website. Now, 2024 is a leap year and next week, 29th of February, is the day when traditionally women are allowed to propose to their male partner. What are your views on this? Should women be confined to one day every four years? We'd love to hear your stories. Did you propose to your partner? When did you choose? Was it a leap year or a more unexpected or personal time? And more importantly, what was the response? And men? We'd love to hear from you too. Were you proposed to? How did you feel about it? Get in touch in all the usual ways. You can email me uh, by going to our website. You can message us on 84844. Now, tomorrow is the second anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. According to UN Women, since the beginning of the war, more than 3,000 women and girls have been killed and nearly 5,000 injured, although these figures are likely to be higher and more than half of the 4 million people internally displaced are women. Oksana Grichsenko is a Ukrainian playwright and freelance journalist covering the war for various newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal, and regularly heading to the front line to report on what's happening. Her latest play, Milkweed Man, opens in Odessa tomorrow afternoon to mark the anniversary. She describes it as a tragic comedy revealing a family of women living in a village occupied by Russian soldiers debating whether it's time to leave. Well, I spoke to Oksana earlier this morning from Odessa after reports there had been been drone strikes overnight with three people killed. I asked her first what her reaction was to this news after two years of the war. It's always it's always gruesome. Like I see, yeah, three more people. Oh my god. And I again I thought that there might be people killed in Dnipro as well because there was a residential house which was hit by drone and people were maybe under the rubble. So there could be more casualties, unfortunately. And your main job, your, yeah, your paid yeah. job is as a journalist covering the war for the Wall Street Journal and other papers. What's it like being on the front line? Uh, well, it's different because we travel to different areas. Sometimes uh, we see some optimistic stories, 
But most often, of course, there are stories of destruction, of people losing their houses, losing their loved ones. Like last time I traveled to Kharkiv, it was really, really bad because overnight when we were there, we heard explosions and I just immediately jumped to the bathroom because I heard it's very loud, it's something really serious. Mm. And in the morning, we checked the big house, which was hit by a Russian missile. And basically there was like part of the house demolished. And we saw how uh, the uh, rescue workers were looking for people and they found one uh, man alive and it was you know like really uh, everybody was happy because the person was saved Mm. but later that day uh, like five more people were found under the same rubble and they were all dead including the girlfriend of the man we saw alive the un Oksana, i'm sure you've seen this published a press release yesterday saying that women in ukraine face increased challenges in accessing security justice social services mental sexual and reproductive health services employment and that the war has heightened the risk of gender-based violence including conflict related sexual violence human trafficking and intimate partner violence is that a picture that resonates for you well i um I realize that people in Ukraine, they live under constant stress and our our moral state, our psychological state is going not for better, definitely. That's why I think from this goes all this kind of arguments and violence against women, including. And of course, when there is war and destruction and the loss, the worst comes out of people. And that's also a reason of uh, heightened uh, violence against women, I suppose. And of course, you'll be talking to women. What are they saying to you? Oh, very different stories. I saw so many brave women, women who able to survive no matter what. For example, like I remember a woman in the Kharkiv region uh, in the, like a destroyed uh, the former farm where they rebuilt a house which was the Basically, it was done from the cases of Russian weapons. So the son of this woman and her husband, they built the second floor of the building. Mm. And now they live there. And she plants avocado in a small pot. And uh, when you look in the window, it's like a lunar lunar landscape. Everything is destroyed. There, uh, there's no houses. There's like a trees. They are demolished. They're like deformed. But at the same time, this woman, she plants avocado and she kind of tries to keep her life normal. And this is really, I don't know, it's warming and uh, and gruesome at the same time. Mm. You actually, Oksana, left Ukraine initially when the invasion took place two years ago and you went to Romania. And then you made a decision to go back. Why? What yeah. brought you back? It's my job because I'm a journalist. And of course, for journalists, it's... Uh, the best place to be is to be closer to conflict, to see how the events are developing. I started working with the Wall Street Journal when I was in Romania. So I was basically talking to people online or through phone, and I was checking it uh, through the internet. But when you come to the place, when you see people, and like it's it's definitely very different, and you get the first-hand account from, of, of what's going on in Ukraine. And another reason, basically, when I was in Romania, I felt like an observer. 
I was uh, checking what's going on in Ukraine. I was uh, crying a lot. I was worrying for everybody. But when I came to Ukraine, I became a kind of participant. And it's a different feeling. It's more empowering. So I feel much better when I'm here, though I realize it's definitely more dangerous because Russian missiles can hit you everywhere. Why did you choose to stay? It Make takes a certain sense. resilience and a certain... Not everybody would make that choice, Oksana. Well, I was uh, covering this conflict since 2014, since Russia annexed Crimea. I kind of accustomed to violence, to this kind of uh, horrible events. At the same time, I realized my, my life makes more sense when I'm here than when I'm abroad, I think, um, because just, I can cover the war. Of course. Yeah. It must be incredibly tough some days. What gets you through? Yes, it's a good question. Well, I think uh, a good rest. So basically when I leave, when I come back from assignment, I take a day or two when I just don't work and rest always helps. I do sports. I go to gym. It also helps. Ideally, of course, to go to a swimming pool, but it's hard with this in here now. And uh, yes, like uh, meeting friends, family relations, this usual stuff which helps everybody, that's what helps to me as well. And amongst all of this, you've, you've found time to write a play called Milkweed Man. Tell us about it. Uh, this is a story about five women who live under occupation. They live in a small village and they argue all the time, should they leave it uh, or should they stay? And uh, a Milkweed Man... It's like a magic creature which uh, grandma uh, advises a uh, mother to grow up from the seeds of a milkweed. And basically, it is kind of a Jewish golem. So basically, a creature which was uh, created to uh, save uh, people from enemies. Hmm. So it, uh, this milkweed man uh, should uh, save these women from Russian soldiers. Who live in the same in the same village, but basically it's like more complicated than that because these women they are able to help themselves even without any any magic. And why did you want to focus on the experience of women? Why center it around five women? There were a number of reasons. So basically, I wanted to write about life under occupation mm. because it's really I'm really concerned about how people survive there. And I interviewed people who came from under-occupied uh, cities and villages. And all of them, it happened that all of them were women. So basically, these were women's stories. And I am a woman myself, so some stuff I kind of understand better and maybe can show them better from women perspective. And there was also practical reason. Uh, when I was working on this play, I consulted to one uh, theater director who's also a woman, and she told me, if you want to write a play, you better do it with uh, female characters, because if it's being staged and, for example, brought somewhere abroad, it'll be a trouble if you have male characters, because for men, it's impossible to travel abroad now. Actually, it's possible for Ukrainian actors, but it's difficult. And, yeah. and when you were deciding what to write about, were there things that you thought were just too painful how did you know what to focus on or what you wouldn't focus on? Mm, I wanted the story to be not just painful because basically every, I think every play uh, written now in Ukraine, most of them are like, like maybe like 99% are about war and there's always pain in them. Mm. But I wanted to make it in a way optimistic and even funny 
because I think uh, comedy helps people survive through the difficult times. And we are already two years in, at war. We cannot just write in the sad words about sad stuff. That's why I try to make it in a genre of uh, tragic and comedy at the same time. And when I heard uh, like uh, this performative reading of my play, I, I visited it and I saw like people were laughing a lot. And I thought, well, actually, when I, I was writing it, I I was quite sad. But in a way, it it brings people love, which I, I think is good. And it, it's what we all need in Ukraine now. We need optimism, definitely what we are lacking at the moment. So what do you think theatre has to offer people at this time in Ukraine? Uh, I think um, it should offer some sense. It should offer some like procession of the events which are happening around people. And at the same time, it should bring them some some hope, some optimism, because we'll have a lot of patience and optimism and uh, resilience mm. to keep on living through this in Ukraine, especially it's for audience in Ukraine, I think. And I'm interested in what you just said, that writing the play was, was quite painful for you. So what, what, yeah. was the, what was the whole process like, writing it and then actually watching people respond to it? It was strange. It was, you know, it's always like uh, some stuff I thought like very important, but people didn't notice it that much. But other stuff they noticed, it, which you didn't pay that much attention. You never, you never know how uh, audience react. Hmm. But yeah, I was surprised that they laughed so much. In the end, they were nearly crying, which, which is kind of uh, predictable because when I was finishing this play, I was all in in tears. Hmm. But it, it's how it should be. Absolutely, Oksana. What a thing to be able to uh, offer people at such a horrific moment in history. What are your hopes and fears for the next few months? Uh, All my my hopes and fears are linked to the front line. So if our soldiers, like, stay put, it'll be good. And, of course, my hopes are are lying on uh, what's going on in the United States. And if we get, uh, like, military assistance... uh, financial assistance from the US because again it's what impacts frontline and it's what impacts uh, the safety of our cities because we need uh, uh, air defense we badly need air defense every day we see this so if we get it but the sooner it happens the better it will be for us uh, the more lives will be saved I think. Oksana Gritsenko there talking to me from Odessa earlier this morning. Now, my next guest is an unintentional trailblazer, Emily Spurrell, who will soon, in a few weeks, become the first police and crime commissioner to have a baby while in office. PCCs, as they're called, are directly elected politicians whose job is to oversee the police force in their area, Merseyside, in Emily's case. When she found out she was pregnant last year, it turned out there is no protocols or laws for maternity leave provisions for her role and that she's not eligible for statutory maternity leave. So, like many other women before... She had to figure it out by herself. Emily, welcome to the programme. Also joining us is Tim Durrant, Programme Director at the Institute of Government, who's currently researching maternity leave provisions for elected officials. Tim, welcome to you. Emily, I'm going to come to you first. Um, Did you know there were no rules for maternity before you got pregnant? And how did you find out? 
Um, I, I wasn't aware. I, I knew there were limited restrictions. You know, I know that colleagues in, in Parliament and the Council have had similar challenges, but I think I naively thought that I would be entitled to something. Um, and particularly relevant to me was that I was keen to um, use shared parental leave so that I could passport some of my entitlement onto my partner who could then take the time off and then I could return. So I had this whole plan and it was only after I, you know, we started making inquiries about well what is the process what is the guidance we discovered actually i'm not entitled to any of that and there's no guidance in place so we've kind of been finding our way a little bit how do you react to something like that when you find out well i think it was a bit frustrating i think you know it's been a long journey for for, for me and my husband to get pregnant so i think we were obviously really excited and hadn't really thought i guess about what came next because this was such a big hurdle for us so i was uh, i suppose just a bit uh, frustrated that I'm having to spend some time figuring out what that looks like rather than most you know mums who are kind of excitedly planning the arrival of their their new baby and things like that so I guess it was just an air of frustration um, that we're not going to be able to access what we what we wanted to. So I'm going to read out the Home Office statement here it says as elected individuals it is for PCCs to determine their own arrangements for any period of absence from their office where a PCC is intending to make alternative arrangements to fulfill their duties we would encourage PCCs to engage their police and crime panel about their proposed arrangements what did you do and also well we we had those conversations with the home office and and you know i think there's an acknowledgement that this is a the first time that we've experienced this so albeit the role is still relatively new um, and only came in 13 years ago so it surprises me that nobody thought about it you know in such a short space of time um we we are working with our panel you know i've got a really good deputy commissioner who will be able to step in and cover for me uh, you know in the vast majority of cases um and my panel have supported you know the plans that we are putting in place and we are looking to think about what should be in place for longer term for hopefully future PCCs recognizing that we're you know we're kind of working our way through the legislation um but we have we have done that um but I think it's a case of we probably should have had a clearer guidance from the beginning really I'm going to bring Tim in here first of all Tim I have to say normally we're able to provide experts on any kind of issue but it seems that there is no expert on this particular subject of PCCs you're the closest we could get um it shows how long away we are from making it work uh, you're currently researching maternity leave provisions for other elected officials MPs and ministers why had no one thought about PCCs before uh, well morning Anita it's great to be here so I think part of it is as Emily said it is still a relatively new role you know they only came in in 2012 I think there were 41 of them uh, overseeing each of the police forces in England and Wales outside London so it's it's a new role and as a limited number and i guess yet yeah, the the situation just never arose before now and uh, the uh, the legislation that set up the role didn't do anything about this and actually we've seen the same thing uh, obviously there are more mp's and we've had mp's for longer um but uh it's only sort of in the last 50 years or so that there have been uh, a bulk of female mp's and of uh, people who are women who are having babies so that the system in parliament has also kind of evolved quite sort of in an ad hoc kind of making it up as we go a long way for that that period and I think you know Emily as, as she's saying that the PCC system is at the start of that evolutionary process. It's interesting isn't it because you'd think that the, when they're setting out a, a job they think of the spec and they think of all the terms and conditions and all of it and that, that um, just something as huge as parental leave not even maternity parental leave isn't thought about. Absolutely. And I think it's because these roles are so unique, you know, because they're elected office holders rather than employees, then they don't fall under the kind of standard employment law that um, that I have as you know an employee of the Institute of Government, for example, and, and most people will have in their, their day to day job. So, as you say, the, the 
the legislation that sets out these roles is kind of focused on their powers and their abilities and how they interact with different bits of the state and government and so on, and less about the kind of the benefits to the individual uh, person doing the job. So Emily, as, as well as taking on this new role and being pregnant, you then had to think about what provisions you would put in place. So you had to work it out for yourself. Yes, essentially. I think and it's interesting because, you know, Tim's saying that obviously we're starting this journey with the PCC role as we have done with other political roles. I think the frustration for me is we should have known this. You know, this was only introduced 13 years ago. It wasn't out of the realm of possibility that you would have a young woman who wanted to go off and have a start a family at some point. Um, and indeed, I have had male colleagues who have who had have, have had children but not had the same kind of discussions. So I think, you know, we're using what we've got. As I say, I've got a deputy and she will cover me as much as possible. But I think the, the, the comment from the Home Office that this is a unique situation when actually we know women have been having babies for thousands of years and we know that we want more women in politics and policing in these very male-dominated environments. It's surprising to me that this wasn't something that was thought about when the legislation was written only 13 years ago. Why wasn't it thought about, Tim? I think because, yeah, as as Emily says, I suppose, you know, these are traditionally male-dominated areas. Perhaps there was no one uh, was thinking about um, women who would actually be doing these jobs. I don't have the figures to hand, but uh, I can imagine perhaps back when these elections first took place, there were more men elected as PCCs. And so it wasn't it wasn't an issue. Um, and, and again, you know, in Parliament, uh, we're still a long way off 50-50 Parliament, but, but there has been an increase in the proportion of women MPs. And so as there have been more female MPs and more younger female MPs, the number of women wanting to take maternity leave has increased. And so it's become more of an issue through Parliament. So what are the rules for other elected officials and can they be applied to PCCs? So for MPs, they uh, it, it's, it's, there's a variety of different rules, partly because it affects which part of their job you're talking about so only MPs can be in the chamber of the house of commons when it's sitting and only MPs are the people only people who are elected can be MPs so you can't have a direct replacement for that aspect of the role what they do on the votes in parliament is they have proxy votes so another MP from their party will vote on their behalf then there's the kind of constituency facing side of the role where different MPs take different approaches some of them uh, Stella Creasy a Labour MP from London has um, she actually um, appointed a locum to cover for her kind of constituency side of things uh, while she was out on, on maternity leave. Others have kind of managed it with their staff. So their staff will deal with the inquiries from their constituents or, you know, taken a few weeks off and then gone back sort of more gradually. So it's very much up to them. With ministers, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a piece of legislation passed called uh, the Ministerial Maternity Leave Act. And that was because Suella Braverman, who at that point was Attorney General, wanted to go on maternity leave. And there are various pieces of legislation that require there to be an Attorney General. We have to have an Attorney General. Mm. And so she uh, she couldn't just kind of fudge it and let her, her deputy take over. There had to be someone who had that job title. So, but they needed legislation to allow someone to take that on temporarily. So another, another place where it's, 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 it's developing as women take on the role. Um, Emily, if you'd have known that the maternity provisions weren't there, would you have applied for the role? Yes, I absolutely would have done. I, you know, I'm really passionate about the work that I'm doing and I think I'm making a really positive difference and I don't think it would have ever stopped me. But I think, you know, as I alluded to, this has been a long journey for us. This has been seven years of us trying to have a family. So when I started this journey of trying to get pregnant, I wasn't in the role I was in now. So, you know, you kind of have to go with the situation that you're in. So, um, but I do know, and I have spoken to other colleagues and people who are thinking about standing for election, for example, for PCCs in the future, who actually have gone, oh, we didn't know that was an issue. Um, And actually I am thinking, 
them while starting a family. So I think it could put other women off, mm. um, you know, because they have to start trying to make those choices around whether they can have a family or whether they do the, the political role. So it, it didn't, it wouldn't have affected me, but I think it could affect others in the future, which is the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Well, you are the trailblazer. You are the one now setting the standard and, and figuring it out. When's the baby due? Uh, about four weeks, end of March. And uh, you intend to go back to work? That's the hope. Um, there are elections in May, so if I am successfully re-elected, then my hope is I will be back at work after that point, yeah. Well, we want to wish you the best of luck. Thank you both for speaking to me on this issue, Emily Spurrell and Tim Durrant. Um, and you have been getting in touch with me about various things that you've heard on the programme, mainly about the incredible interview with Kelsey Parker at the beginning of the programme. What a remarkable woman she is. And lots of you talking about your own experience of losing partners and what to do with your wedding rings. Um, Alice said, my husband died six years ago when our boys were one and three. I took the ring off my finger quite soon after he died as I simply thought I'm not married but my wedding ring was a simple gold band so I've worn it on a gold necklace chain alongside another gold chain ever since I took it off. I like the way the ring looks on the chain but also I know that the boys like that I still wear it and Pam in East Yorkshire says after 15 years I still wear my rings and have no intention of removing them when or if to stop wearing them is totally personal decision and there is no right or wrong answer. Uh, That's it from me enjoy the rest of your weekend and do join me tomorrow for Weekend Woman's Hour. That's all for today's Woman's Hour. Join us again next time. Hi, I'm Mariana Spring, the BBC's disinformation and social media correspondent. And I've learned firsthand that the online world can be a breeding ground for hate. But why do some people behave the way they do on social media? For BBC Radio 4, I'm meeting the people at the heart of some extraordinary online conflicts to see if understanding, even forgiveness, is ever possible. Listen to Why Do You Hate Me on BBC Sounds.